Welcome to Conversations with Connors. I'm your host, Adam Connors. Tipper X, he's the man most notably known as the whistleblower on the largest insider trading scandal that resulted in the demise of the Galleon Group, an $8 billion hedge fund ran by Raj Rajaratnam. I know Tipper X is my good friend, Tom Harden. Tom's compelling story of going from an Ivy League-educated Wall Street analyst on the fast track to convicted felon to a premier speaker is not to be missed. Tom shines the spotlights on the concerns, conflicts, and morality judgments, a subject we'd all rather not talk about, but must. Rest assured, after listening to Tom's trials and tribulations, whenever presented with a morally challenging situation that brings you, quote-unquote, close to the line, Tom's story will come right back to you. This is a smooth, flowing, and candid conversation amongst friends that will leave you on the edge of your seat. Rather than steal the powerful thunder within this riveting podcast, hear it for yourself, sit back, and enjoy my conversation with Tom Harden. Tom, is there anything that's off the table? Nothing. 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 Candid. Candid. Open book. All right. I remember you telling me something about Carrying cash. Sure. So back in the summer of 2007, 11 years now, I was working as an analyst uh, for a hedge fund in New York. People don't know what hedge funds are. We could buy stocks that we thought would go up and short stocks, but against stocks that we thought would go down. So over five or 10 years, the idea is you outperform the market. And so I was going to attend an investment conference in San Francisco where I'd see companies that I wanted to invest in speaking and get to meet with them. As I approached the TSA checkpoint uh, at LaGuardia Airport to go catch the flight to San Francisco, I'm extremely nervous as I approach that TSA checkpoint to go to the gates. And I'm not nervous because I'm a nervous flyer. I'm nervous because I have $15,000 strapped to my chest, my pockets, and in my socks. And I'm about to go through that TSA checkpoint on the way to the gate. And I make it through that checkpoint, go to my gate, I go to the restroom, in the restroom, take all the money off my body and put it in the bank envelopes in my carry-on bag. And as my flight was called to board uh, to San Francisco, there were actually two TSA agents at the gate randomly stopping passengers <laughs> as they were boarding the flight and searching their carry-ons. I've never seen TSA agents at the gate. Of course, when my group is called, I'm trying not to make eye contact. And I was stopped by one of the TSA agents. The agent took my carry-on, opened it, flipped through it, looked at the other TSA agent and he looked at me and he said, sir, have a nice flight. So good old TSA. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Going to sit in my seat in the plane and thinking, my God, what the heck am I doing? How did I get here? Um, And I can start. Yeah. How about that? (laughs) (laughs) That's my question too, Tom. (laughs) My question for everybody else uh, also. (laughs) So. Uh, Going back, I was born in the late 1970s in a suburb of Atlanta, Georgia. Father worked at the Coca-Cola company there in Atlanta. Mother ran a nursery of uh, kids. She kept uh, babysitted kids at her house. Um, So myself and my two younger brothers, three brothers, middle-class family. First of my extended family to attend college outside the South. Back in the 90s, you applied to like three schools, your reach, your safety, and your middle, unlike today. And I applied to UPenn, uh, the Wharton School there is my reach. Got in, got accepted, 1995, graduated uh, 1999, um, majored in finance at Wharton, and as many people did, started investment banking. 
1999 working uh, for a company called DLJ that's no longer around, working in their Los Angeles office. And investment banking, for people that don't know, a lot of hours uh, every week working 80, 90, 100 hours a week. Usually you stay two or three years and then go on and do something else, kind of financial boot camp. And around that time, 1999, 2000, tech stocks were kind of all the rage. And I was recruited by a technology stock focused hedge fund in Greenwich, Connecticut. So January of 2000, after a few months at DLJ, I took the flight from LAX and landed in White Plains Airport. And it was snowing. And I thought, you know, what, what am I doing? <laughs> and so started working at this hedge fund in Greenwich, Connecticut in 2000, where my job was to focus on technology stocks, analyze them, analyze the companies and recommend to my boss um, companies that we should buy and then companies that we should bet against or short. Um, so I did that for a couple of years, uh, 2000, 2001, 2002. Good work? Yeah, you know, I found it really interesting. Um, the one thing I liked about investing is you could always focus on something new every day. Like I could investigate a company or a sector and the next day do something completely different. So I liked it sort of intellectually, not having to focus on one thing all the time. I could kind of branch out into different topics, that type of thing, whatever sort of garnered my interest. Mm -hmm. So I enjoyed it. It was a lot of travel, but you know, I was 22, 23, 24, and really felt like I was learning a lot, meeting people, meeting interesting people. And I, I know that you're relatively successful because you know uh, that's the channel from which you and I know each other from a, a former colleague of yours who told me that. I mean, you were one of the standout performers. I did really well. Yeah, yeah at a young age, even got to manage some of the portfolio at my first uh, hedge fund at a young age, got to manage a carve out. So I felt like it would be a really nice career for me, something I would excel at. And so my first uh, fund I worked at closed down in 2002 after the tech stocks crashed. And I spent a few years working for different companies, working for different uh, portfolio managers, trying to kind of find myself in the industry with the hopes of eventually starting my own hedge fund. And around 2001, 2002, I met, I guess I should paint the picture of what sort of the conference, the investment conference circuit was like back yeah, then, good tech, idea. tech stocks. Um, so I go to a conference as a young analyst, uh, meet with companies. Often we meet one-on-one -on -one with man, uh, CEOs and CFOs, interview them. My job as an analyst was not to get any illegal information, but if I was interviewing you a CFO four times a year, every quarter, over several years, I can tell by the way you answer questions, maybe differently than I asked before, whether something might be changing in the business, so whether we should be own the stock, short the stock, or not be involved in the stock. So having that relationship with them really helped. Right, know, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and the repetition of those meetings, uh, what I excelled at was sort of asking the same questions over and over again and trying to gauge that nuance in the answer, which was the job of an analyst. So my boss would always say, you have to get an edge, and an edge can be defined various ways. Some funds, uh, the edge was getting illegal information. Um, so inside information being something that's not, not public material, meaning it would move the stock price and something that was kind of stolen from a company or obtained in a breach of duty or trust. The person shouldn't have shared that with you. So I steered clear of that early in my career. I excelled at just asking the same questions over and over and trying to gauge that nuance in the answer, a company executive. But I noticed at that time in the early 2000s, uh, that some other sort of technology stock-focused hedge funds were blatantly crossing that line and getting illegal information. Uh, you'd be at a conference and see an individual who had worked at maybe an example like Intel Semiconductor, and they still had contacts with that company giving them information. And then you'd see a person who worked at Yahoo or Google, and they'd also have that information. So they'd always talk to each other. And it's not an excuse for what I'm talking about later, 
but it was definitely impressionable on me as a young analyst just seeing like I wasn't part of that network. Like this guy had the information, this company, this guy, and they would only talk to each other because they could share that information. And I wasn't in that that circle. I was doing fine on my own, but I could see that there was this other sort of subsector of, of the industry uh, where they were sharing this information. And that was the early 2000s. And then through my career, 2005, 2006, by 2006, I got a call from a friend uh, who was about 15 years older than me in the industry. And he said, look, you know, I got a meeting uh, with this very well-known value investor, billionaire, who wants to seed him to start a hedge fund Would I be his junior partner. And I was 28 years old. And to have the seed at that age to be a junior partner at a hedge fund, it was a no-brainer. <laughs> you <laughs> expedited your career 20 yeah. years. Yeah. I had been waiting for that, you know, some kind of opportunity like that to occur. And so it finally happened in 2006. Uh, we set up shop. Uh, we started with uh, an investment of $15 million from this legendary value investor. And here was an opportunity for me to, to build a real business, build a really lucrative career at a young age, and hopefully kind of do this until I didn't want to do it anymore. Also around sort of 2006, 2007, I started to notice that the behavior in the industry uh, with some firms with technology stocks, uh, firms were blatantly crossing the line of picking up illegal information on companies. Give me an example. So. If I talked to a CFO and interviewed him legitimately and said, you know, asking him about product lines or how I'm creating a financial model of his company, if I ask the same line of questioning over and over about products and he changes his answer, that's something I notice, but it's not material to the stock price. But if somebody inside Intel was going to say next quarter, we're going to report this for revenue and this for earnings per share, that's going to move the stock. And having that information is illicit and illegal to have. And it's illegal for that person to share that specific information. And around 2006, some hedge funds got uh, knowledge that certain takeovers were going to happen. Company A was going to buy Company B from their inside sources. And the Financial Times actually commissioned a third-party research firm. And what they looked at was the stock price activity of these largest uh, M&A deals, the stock prices of the companies that were bought. 60% of the largest deals around 06 and 07, the target companies that were bought, the stock prices ran up for days before the announcement. So this leakage of information, because uh, when, when a merger is about to happen, several dozen people know about it in advance, the bankers, the lawyers, there's a lot of people with this information and it only takes one person to leak it. And so this leakage was pretty much happening pretty rampantly around this time. One particular hedge fund that was later shut down I knew that several of their biggest winners that they had picked in 2006 were because they had knowledge of takeovers. And so uh, illicit behavior going on doesn't justify anything I'm about to talk about later, but it sort of sets the stage for at that time what I was seeing, what I was hearing in the industry. Yeah. And then, I mean, I can tell you firsthand, and I, I believe I've shared this with you before, but I remember it clear as day back in 98, 99, even being at Smith & Walensky's coming out of the bathroom. This is back in the day when there were pay phones right. <laughs> and, uh, and there was a gentleman on the phone that was pretty much just like yelling through the other phone. Like I'm tell, I think he was the lawyer or the accountant. He's yeah, like, I'm sure. telling you, this is what you need to do. Like, yell, like no, not hiding this at all. I mean, it was, right. I, so to your point about how rampant it is, this information, uh, you know, and in the leakage play, you know, again, you've got accounting, you know, the back office, legal, the bankers themselves, there's a lot of moving parts that have access to information that's going to go down. Yeah, absolutely. So that's happening. Yeah. Um, so 2006 was the first year of our hedge fund performance. Uh, we returned about 20% net of fees, which is a really good start, a really good return. Typical 2 and 20. 2 and 20. Yeah. So 2% management fee, 20% incentive fee. And so we go out and market our hedge fund. We had a year under our belt. 
And one particular potential investor we met with said, great start guy, he's up 20%, but we didn't outperform uh, the hedge fund that he already had money with in our sector, which was called Galleon, run by this guy, Raj Rajaratnam. Why would this guy give money to us when we could you know, potentially lose all of his money next year? What if we're, we're a startup? Why would he take that career risk when he could give more money to the sure thing? So that meeting definitely left an impression with me, like, okay, this is what we're up against. And a few months later, March of 2007, I got a phone call in my office and it was from a woman who I knew as an investor in the industry. She worked as a consultant to a few hedge funds. And she knew this individual, uh, Roger Rotnam, uh, who ran the Galleon Group. You know, she knew about his behavior too over the years, sharing illicit information. And she called and said, you know, Tom, I finally got, I've finally got something, but you can't tell anybody uh, specific information from me. She told me that a company called Kronos, a technology company, was going to be acquired next week, this date, by this price, by this private equity firm. So very specific information. I had never heard anything like this before. On a platter. Ever in my life, on a platter, right. It sounded like it at the time. She had never called with something specific. I knew her more. She lived in Silicon Valley to be more of like a rumor monger, always sort of calling with sort of a rumor. Most of them were not even correct. It's just sort of like what she was hearing, chatter, sort of. Did she do institutional research sales or what was her no, role? No, she was on the that? buy side. She was working oh, she as was. a consultant. Okay. She had worked uh, for Roger Rotten before. She had made a bunch of money in the late 90s and was kind of managing her own account and then consulting for income to a few hedge funds in New York and ideas. One of her hedge fund clients, I remember her telling me in 06, told her that they only wanted inside information from her. That should have been a red flag for me to, to end our relationship, but I didn't. Yeah. So yeah. We're all Monday morning quarterbacks. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so this is the person who called with this information at this time, March of 2007. I didn't make any trades on this information that at that point. But later on that day, I was talking to a friend at another firm who he later got charged. And so I'll just call him uh, cooperating witness one. I told him, you know, she said, don't tell anybody. And the first thing I did you know, was tell somebody. <laughs> and uh, as we were talking, I didn't bring it up until the end of our conversation. He's like, you got anything else you're hearing? And he kind of just went to, I sort of was sticking my chest a little bit. Yeah, I got, you know, I got this piece of information from a friend saying this Moody's analyst who was working on this deal told her this information about this company that's going to be acquired next week. And so he turns out he goes and tells it to everybody at his firm. And so he works as a trader on the trading desk. One of the individuals at his firm bought several hundred thousand shares of Kronos on my information. So I haven't even traded yet, but by sharing it, I could actually have been charged by the SEC for insider trading for tipping. Down the stream now, this guy on his desk buys several hundred thousand shares. And then the next day or so, uh, I haven't bought any yet. He calls me, he's like, dude, are you in? Like, we're all in here. I'm like, what do you mean we're all in? Everybody here is in. <laughs> but who knows at this point if this is even true because she's never called with something like this before. And I said, what the hell? I bought, so at my company, if you think about our portfolio in terms of percentage of assets that we can put into one stock, typically uh, maybe a, a high conviction position would be seven or 8% of our assets in one stock, like our favorite ideas. Mm -hmm. For less than 1% position in the portfolio, me as a junior partner, I could initiate that before talking to my senior partner, kind of as something I'm working on. Mm -hmm. So he could see it and say, oh, is this something we should make bigger? Where are you on your work as a starter position? So I bought a 0.9% position in our portfolio in Kronos. And to cross that line to commit securities fraud, it was actually pretty easy to do. I said, you know, at the time, it seems like a lot of people are doing it. I said, you know, who am I hurting? It wasn't like creating a Ponzi scheme to steal money. Like it's breaking a lot. This law. is your internal dialogue. Yeah, my internal talk. Yeah, 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 sorry. Right. Not, not, uh, 
not talking to anybody other than myself, convincing myself to do this. I could actually buy this stock and still think of myself as a good person, meaning there's four trades that happened. None of them were in my personal trading account because that would be bad. I'm really trying to make money. And none of them were bigger than 1% because then I'd get caught and or, or <laughs> I would be caught later. But so this there's this idea in social science called fudge factor where people want to cheat up to the point where they can feel still feel good about themselves. Rarely does it escalate to this. Normally it might be something day to day in the last month, more deductions than income taxes, but that little fudge factor people have. And that was kind of like my line of thinking at the time. Who am I hurting? I'm buying it small. Seems like everybody's doing this. A few days later, the stock was halted and the news came out. So, okay, this is actually happening. Uh, this is not a rumor. And I hate to say it, but when the news hit the tape, I kind of got this sort of endorphin rush, like like a gambler's high, I guess. Like, oh my God, I knew something like nobody else knew or very few people knew about. It was like, that was kind of like a good feeling at that time. Like, oh, I knew something. I finally know something that these other guys know about. And the problem is, and as I understand it today, it might work in white collar crime. Once you do something like this once, it becomes easy to do it again. So there was three more trades. The second trade, Hilton was going to be acquired by the Blackstone Group, a private equity firm, the same tipping chain, Moody's analyst to this woman, to me. Hilton Hotels? Or Hilton Hotels. Okay, and we're a tech yeah. stock focused hedge fund. Yeah, that's right. Buying shares at Hilton Hotels the day, a few days before. Yeah. That's how brazen. I mean, today, I'd say, well, you're probably going to be caught for <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but at the time, yeah. you know, buying a little bit of stock then. And then the third trade, her tipper wanted a cash payoff. And so she called me and said, this person wants $15,000. And I called the friend of the trading firm who I'd been tipping her information with and said, can you pass the hat around and get this together? I wasn't going to write this person a check. And so literally, it's like out of the movie's Grand Central, this guy drops me cash in this FedEx envelope. And I'm scheduled to go out to San Francisco for a conference uh, the next week or so. I'm going to see her there. And so that was my opening story, uh, carrying that through the airport. Mm. I Googled like you can't have over 10, which I guess is true internationally, but you can domestically. But yeah, that's that's illicit criminal behavior. That's that's not the that's not the gray area. Wow. Um, Did this money, all these investments that you made, make you rich? So there were four four trades like this, all small trades. The firm, my firm, made one point two million. Not me personally, my firm. We managed about a hundred million in assets. So like one percent of our performance came from these, and we were already up about thirty percent that year. So like thirty one percent instead of thirty. So it wasn't like we were struggling, and I needed to cross the line to make money already doing well. It was kind of like something just added a little additive. But of the 1.2 million, my take as the junior partner, me personally, was $46,000. And people- so that was think, worth it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> looking at it, and I was making more than 46000 at the time. And people want to think about, oh, the criminals charged must be making millions of dollars. And even as I speak today as Tipper X, people say, oh, I thought Tipper X made millions. Like, no, $46,000. And I wasn't thinking about the riches to be made on the crime. And that's very counterintuitive to a lot of people who most people are not criminals. They want to think about, well, criminal must be trying to make a lot of money. I wasn't thinking about the money. And I never considered the idea of ever being caught. Like, I would never be caught because it was small trading. And that's also another sort of fallacy people think about. Like, hmm. well, yeah. Um, so $46,000, unfortunately, later on was the price of professional suicide at 29. Threw away my career for $46,000. This woman gave me a call at the end of 2007. So this was four trades in 2007, just to set the time. In 2007, she said, Tom, Tom, uh, the SEC has contacted me about the Hilton trade. 
I'm going to tell them I bought Hilton because Paris Hilton was in the news. I thought, that doesn't sound like a great... great. <laughs> so she's, she's panicking. That doesn't sound like a good excuse you can uh, you should use. But I thought, holy crap, what if uh, they're going to look at who she called? I better have a plan in place why I bought these stocks. But they were just small trades. So I don't have to sort of backdate any major research I did. I can just sort of make something up and brush them off. And so I had a plan in place, but... Like Mike Tyson says, everybody has a plan until they get punched. punched in the mouth. <laughs> yeah. So you don't get a polite phone call from the regulator. July 8th, 2008. Now, this is a few months, uh, maybe eight months after my last illicit trade. I was dropping off my dry cleaning. I lived at 55th and 8th in West Midtown, dropping off my dry cleaning at 6.30 in the morning. Uh, turned around, and there was an FBI agent, two FBI agents there in dark suits, while it's out, just like a Law & Order episode, are you? <laughs> right out of the movies. <laughs> right out of the movies. Literally, yeah. dark suit, 6.30 in the morning on the street. Are you Tom? Yes. Uh, come sit down with us. So there's a Wendy's at 55th and 8th. Uh, and so we sat down there. And they're like, look, you know, we know about those four trades. We know that I was. they knew I was just down in Atlanta visiting my nephew Carter for his baptism on Sunday. So they, they sort of had been following me. They wanted to make it clear, sort of scare tactics. And so... My first thought was like, oh, my God, you know, my parents are going to be so upset about this. And then I thought, oh, my God, my wife's going to find out because I've only been married two years at that point or four years. And then I thought, oh, my God, this might impact my career. Oh, it, it did. <laughs> 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 and then, uh, oh, my just, God, just a, <laughs> just a little bit. Yeah. Oh, my God, I might be going to prison. And then so I these, started. These are all the thoughts running through your head yeah, yeah, during so started this 630 a.m. Like, yeah, that, like, right. Yeah. Like, what do you think about, like. That's the way the thoughts that came into my head sort of in that sequence. And then I just, you know, their, their mouths are moving kind of like um, the Charlie Brown teacher, wah, 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 and I could kind of see it in slow motion. And so I immediately started making implicating statements. Uh, yes, I made those four trades. In fact, at LaGuardia, there was this cash payoff, and they're like, all right, settle down, settle down. Like, So I joke today, if the FBI approaches you on the street, uh, don't talk, just take their card. <laughs> but six you had no obligation to speak to him? No, I wasn't under arrest. Um, but 6.30 in the morning, it's startle tactics. I'm making these implicating statements. I mean, subconsciously, I knew that, uh, you know, I was in uh, pretty some pretty deep water here. They had this. I knew I broke the law. I wasn't going to try to cover it up. And the only positive from this, like one of the only positives, I didn't lie to them. I just said, yeah, I'm straight up. This happened. And there was these four trades. And they said, okay, do you know of illicit trading going on in the industry? And as I said in the beginning, yeah, you know, I know about it. It's, it's, it's rampantly going on. Some firms uh, in the Bay Area, this was their business model. And so they pulled out this web of like insider trading tipping charts with uh, names and arrows. Sort of this person gave this person information. All the names were whited out. I couldn't see them, uh, but they had two big targets. So I kind of assumed they're probably going after this person I spoke about before, Roger Rotnam. And so they folded it up and they said, Tom, you have the opportunity to help us build bigger cases, it's gonna help you. And then I said, oh, um, should I talk to a lawyer? They said, well, we'll let you know, we should do that, so. <laughs> <laughs> they're your friends. But they're your friends, yeah. <laughs> Two agents, you know, good cop, bad cop. So I was ready to help them out, but I said, you know, what does it even mean to help you? After a few days, I thought about this, I went to work, it was the summer of 2008. The market was not doing well, dealing with this, <sighs> thinking about the life consequences of what was about to happen or what had already happened. I was having panic attacks at night, Finally called the FBI maybe two days later and said, I mean, I haven't talked to anybody. I know this is going on rapidly. I could help you. What does it even mean to help you? And they said, all right, thank you for your call. What you're going to have to do for us is wear a body wire. 
like a wire, like these old movies mafia wire? movies. But it wasn't like taped to my chest. That was probably like not like The Godfather or anything. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but um if you remember the old Blackberry, the size of that battery, like an inch or two mm-hmm. big, and it fit in my front pocket. My job for them was basically, mm-hmm. could I get anybody in the industry in a conversation about one time they made one of these illicit trades? Or could I get them talking about um, sort of inside contacts they had inside these companies that I described before? And I was like, well, where do I? I went back to my apartment, like, where do I start? Kind of have this open playing field. I thought about, all right, who are the most corrupt players in the industry right now? started with them. I mean, I didn't know, I knew them more by reputation. So it was sort of a year of building relationships, getting people in these conversations. And then the idea was, of course, uh, please be clearly into my chest, but but going to a coffee or something and just trying to build relationships or at these conferences. And so this started in 2008. It went on through 2009. Uh, So working. Oh my God, that must've been so heavy on your head. Yeah. Yeah, at and, first- And uh, did your family know about this? Uh, only my wife knew at okay. this point. Uh, they said I could only tell my wife. Um, so they approached me on a Tuesday. That Friday, I was having panic attacks, bad bed sweats. I right, just kind of figured something was going on. So Friday, young couple in the city, glass of wine after work. How was your week? Oh, I better sit down. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, uh, what had happened? But her first response was, oh, you know, you didn't do anything against me. I was lucky she processed it that way because most wives, they wouldn't even let you say FBI before you're kicked out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> FBI. <you know. laughs> but uh, yeah. and I said what happened, you know, she understood the gravity of the situation. She was uh, amazing. It wasn't easy, but we were able to get through it. She took it, I think, that way. Like, I didn't do anything purposely towards her. If I had said something about infidelity, I think that would have obviously ended the marriage. But she took it as best as she could. And then so wore these wires for two years sometimes like this face-to-face conversation it would go well in the sense the person would start to talk but when i started doing it um, i'd ask the questions that we kind of prepared with the fbi and sometimes the other party's looking at me weird like you know why is tom asking me these sort of direct questions there's often a lot of silence as the other person tries to think about their answer and i would get nervous in the beginning i want to fill that silence and the fbi would listen to it later and say you have to let that other person speak and so eventually i get people talking but sometimes it didn't go well. Uh, there was one individual who I must have met with him seven or eight times over 2008, got him in these conversations, and he was always looking at me weird, you know, what is this guy asking me this for? And then one Sunday in 2008, he gave me a call. Uh, he lived in Greenwich, Connecticut. I lived in the city. And on a Sunday, after eight meetings or so, he's like, Tom, we need to have dinner tonight. We need to talk. Sunday, and I called the FBI and said, well, this guy wants to have dinner tonight, this guy we've been targeting for a while. And they got excited, like, well, he must want to say something. And so I met the FBI at Grand Central. They gave me the the wire for my front pocket. I took the train up to Greenwich. This guy picked me up at the Greenwich train station. And he said, Tom, uh, good to see you. I brought swim trunks for you. We're going to go swimming at my mother's house. <laughs> I didn't know him yeah. that well. <laughs> <laughs> So I don't think know. Think he liked you? Or I, what, it was where did he think was he popular was at the time. So okay. he's looking, uh, I was thinking that in the car, you know. Yeah. We driving in the woods or something. Uh, and then we, we drove to this mansion and we walk into this room and he starts disrobing in this room. So he wants to see if something is taped to my chest, I guess. And it, it was in my front pocket. So it's not something he could see. My heart was pounding. A really awkward thing to be doing. And so I excused myself to the restroom, put the swim trunks on took the wire in my front pocket and put it in my jeans pocket, which I left on the bed in the room. So it's the two of us in our swim trunks walking out to the swimming pool. It's so quiet. 
I see like a shovel against the house, a hole in the ground. They're going, oh my God, is this guy going to try to kill me or something? <laughs> and he was just having landscaping done or whatever. And uh, we got in the swimming pool and he grabs a tennis ball and we're playing this like awkward game of catch. And he's like, Tom, you've been acting kind of weird. I have one question for you. Have you been approached by the SEC? And truthfully, I could say, no, not the SEC. The SEC brings civil charges. The FBI works to bring criminal charges. And so I could say, no, not the SEC. And so this guy, once he saw I wasn't wearing a wire, started making some implicating statements. And he's actually still managing a hedge fund today. Wow. So not everybody was caught in these cases yet. Wow, that's amazing. But uh, that's probably the closest I felt to being kind of a life-threatening situation. Um, so I'm sure this guy's on your speed dial now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he hasn't yet had me as a guest speaker. <laughs> <laughs> and you haven't gone swimming, I guess. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> wow, so yeah, some pretty so intense stuff. Pr- yeah, that that's as intense dealing. as it got. But it was. Uh, it went on for two years. I left my firm... Early 2009, I thought my name be- might become public any day, and I didn't want to be working, obviously. And so December 2009, so a year into this, I was encouraged to hire a lawyer, a year into cooperation. And so I knocked on a lawyer's door, Tom Harden, working with the FBI for a year. Wait a minute, have you had counsel? No. I said, Tom, you're supposed to, you know, Did he the want first to fire? Day. Did he want to fire you or... What's that? <laughs> fire you? Or? Well, you know, he's like, you're supposed to hire somebody the first day. I said, you know, it's my first time doing this. Uh, <laughs> I don't have any excuses. So my case at this point, you know, cooperating for a year without counsel was pretty straightforward. It wasn't a whole lot that was going to happen that would be, uh, other than what would my sentence be? I mean, it's pretty straightforward. I'm pleading guilty. I'm not going to trial. And so May 2009, I meet with the prosecutor. I'm still cooperating. December 2009. My cooperation's coming to a close, so it's time to self-surrender downtown at the FBI in Manhattan. So I'm processed. I'm putting handcuffs, fingerprinted. I'm taken to the U.S. Marshal's office before I go see a judge. And I'm the only person in this like place in this small prison cell. I'm the only person in the prison cell wearing a suit. There was a guy next to me, a big guy with tattoos up his neck. He's like, man, what are you in for? Like Insider trading? <laughs> you nailed it. <laughs> like, bet, bet, bet I won't see you here again. Hope not. <laughs> This is it for me? <laughs> and I'm finally calling from a judge. And this whole time with the FBI, you know, they're so well trained in psychological tactics. Like, Tom, you're doing such a great job. Who else can you bring us? I'm thinking, maybe these guys are going to hire me when this is all over. Like, no, there's no professional cooperators. <laughs> like, this is, or maybe they're going to drop the charges. My lawyer said, no, they're, they're not dropping the charges. So, you know, you're calling from a judge to make the guilty plea. And then it's really the gravity sets in. Like, here's the charging document United States of America versus Thomas C. Harden. So, no matter how much I help these guys, I'm still pleading guilty to two felonies, uh, one count securities fraud, uh, one count conspiracy to commit securities fraud. And I was looking at three years in prison based on the amount of money my firm made for a financial crime. So whether it's a Ponzi scheme for $1.2 million or it's insider trading, it's the same sentence for securities fraud. Wow. And so we thought with my cooperation, I'm not going to go to prison for three years, but getting no jail was certainly not. I mean, I could have gotten some prison, depending on the judge, whether yeah. she wants to throw the book at you or not. And so January 2010, just a month later, my name was released to the public. And so uh, the headlines were Tipper X. I mean, you may have seen. I, I remember that. I, I reached out to you. Yeah, that's right. You, yeah, you did. And very few people did that day. In the industry, understanding, like, you know, they were told, don't talk to anybody in these cases. So what I didn't even consider, again, that anybody that knew me in any professional capacity in the industry had to say, oh, my God, I know this guy. They had to go tell their bosses or their compliance people. And they were all put to the ringer, like, why do you know this convicted felon? Whether we only talked a few times a year or more, more than just myself was impacted by my actions. It's not something I considered that first day. And so just thinking about my name being so public, 
how that impacted people. Family telling my parents was tough. You know, I wish I'd handled that a little bit better, but there was really no way, there was nothing I could do. I mean, it was coming out, it was come public. And so 2009, I pled guilty. Uh, I was supposed to be sentenced in 2010, about six months later. And I wasn't sentenced until 2015. Oh, God. Yeah, how, how about yeah. that? Talk to me about the so, uncertainty. So out of work, 2009, uh, 2010, January 2010. So going on just over eight years ago now, my name is public. So I need to work. You know, I'm 30, so I don't – and I have legal fees and I have a fine to pay. So it's not like I'm sitting on much Kids. savings. Yes, one daughter, one infant daughter. My name is public. I haven't been sentenced yet. And that was the hardest part, applying for any job – in my county, Bergen County, there's several uh, medtech pharmaceutical companies that I applied to and to say, just give me a financial analyst back office, just crunch numbers job. But, you know, anybody that even got close to hiring me would say, well, let me know when you're sentenced because we can't hire you if you're going to prison. And I'd say, I don't think I'm going to prison, but of course, like, well, let us know when you're sentenced. And so it was sending out resumes, which is a non-starter because this situation, I'm like, am I going to be upfront about it or do the first and second interview and then kind of bring it up, but it's an easy Google search. And so I was upfront about it and it was a non-starter applying for a job traditionally. My lawyer had said, you know, people in my situation have to start their own companies usually. And so I'd meet with potential angel investors for ideas, but of course, Tom, okay, what did you do before this? Oh, that's a non-starter too. So really banged my head against the wall for all these years. I mean, a lot of my thirties, I couldn't control my next sort of uh, employment phase or whatever you're doing for work. So I just focused on my health. I had gained a bunch of weight just being stressed. Went to the doctor when I was 32, the first time since college, typical guy, nothing's wrong until you're 30, 31, 32. <laughs> and uh, things start slowing down a bit. Had trouble carrying my daughter up the stairs, just out of breath, kind of out of shape. And he's like, look, you know, we took your blood markers. Something's going on. I'm like, oh, Doc, you have an hour. <laughs> See, I'm under stress, but he sort of did the scared straight. Look, you're 32. By the time you're 40, you'll be, we'll be popping your chest open. You're on, the, you're on the typical slippery slope, which so many Americans are on. So it was January. Join the gym. That's what I did every January. You know? And so uh, my wife kind of chuckled. You always join the gym in January. And so she said, why don't we run a 5K in April? That'll be something you can train towards. Like you'll have a goal to train towards, not just joining the gym and not going anymore. And so I put on, I bought some running shoes, went out the door, ran like five minutes and then walked because I couldn't even run a mile. I mean, doing nothing for so long. And, and, then, and you were an athlete though. You played soccer. I, I played soccer you, growing yeah, up. Yeah. But uh, just 22 to 32. And really when I hit 30, 31, 32, gained a bunch of weight in the old job and also the stress of this, what I was going through. But trained for this race. She still beat me pushing the stroller with the infants. <laughs> but I, you know, I lost uh, 20 pounds or something. And then uh, I was hooked. 5Ks, a few more 5Ks, and then 10Ks, and then half marathons, and then started losing more weight, and then uh, started running marathons, qualified for the Boston Marathon uh, about 18 months later, and then uh, ran a couple of marathons under three hours. So I got wow. really Impressive. focused on the training. I was running in the morning before the kids woke up, after they went to bed. I probably wasn't the easiest to be around because if we had to have a serious discussion, I went for a run. So it wasn't uh, about the future, <laughs> but running was my outlet. It wasn't, I didn't talk to a psychiatrist at all, like just running any runners, you know, endorphins, just getting that sort of active yeah. meditation going was good for me. So is this for exercise or mental just relief? Both, yeah. both. Yeah, yeah, I was feeling good because the pounds came off. Yeah. 
but also just mental relief, just an outlet. And so I ran, and the marathon wasn't good enough for me, for me so I wanted to keep pushing the boundaries, and I signed up for a 100-mile uh, uh, ultramarathon. So there are races that exist uh, huh. that are longer than marathon. Yeah, I was going to say, explain that to the, yeah. to the yeah. average Joe so, who's not going to know what mm -hmm. that is. Or... So marathons are 26.2 miles, and there's a class of races called ultramarathons, which is anything longer than a marathon. They start, the shortest distance is usually 50 kilometers, so that's 31.1 miles. And they go up now to, there's 200-mile races. But, oh, my God. And so it's a different sort of class, like different kinds of people do ultras and do marathons. Marathon, Boston Marathon tend to be very type A. Uh, ultra marathon people kind of easygoing, just sort of run 100 miles. <laughs> We're not racing. <laughs> sort of, you just want to try to finish it. Apologies for interrupting this conversation, especially if you're really enjoying it. I know that I get frustrated when I'm listening to a good podcast, so I'll make it quick. If you're enjoying our podcast, please support us on patreon.com slash networkwise. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash networkwise. All patrons will receive early access to podcasts and exclusive networking advice. Okay, that was painless. So all you have to do now is help us on Patreon and enjoy the remainder of the show. And so uh, this race I signed up for was around a one-mile loop, a county next to mine uh, in northwest uh, New Jersey. So a one-mile loop, 100 miles. Most of these 100-mile races in the U.S. are point-to-point. -point. Like, you're going to suffer, but at least you're going to have something to look at and it's going to change the scenery. I like the loop idea because uh, every mile, you know, if I wanted to take in food, I knew exactly what I'd be taking in versus like a point to point race. You're relying on what are called aid stations. And if the food doesn't agree with you, then you can have problems and your, your race can end. A lot of times the races end because of bad nutrition, bad stomach problems. Huh. And so at least on the one mile loop, I know exactly what I'd be eating and drinking. I set up a table right next to my car and uh, went around the one mile loop. It was actually going OK. I really trained hard for it. And so my strategy. And, and sorry to interrupt. So how many ultra marathons? Just anything over the twenty six point two miles. Right. Which was this ultra? How many miles was this one? So this was actually a twenty four hour race, but my goal was to run a hundred miles in twenty four hours. But you just you just run for twenty four hours. Oh, uh, and so my Couldn't goal sleep for twenty four hours, let alone run. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so my goal was. Uh, run 10 minutes, walk two minutes. I had done a bunch of Google research on how to uh, optimize uh, nutrition and how to optimize the race to keep my legs going. And it seemed like 100 miles in 24 hours was kind of a good target based on where I'd run the marathon. But really, running a marathon versus what I'm going to do in a 100-mile race, it doesn't even compute. I mean, that's not, you can't, you don't even know what's going to happen because things start happening that you never even felt before because you, you can't oh. run like a 70-mile training run because you, huh. so... <laughs> So the 100-mile race, so I'm there. I pull up the uh, the car, set up my table, and I start going. And everything's going great till about 78 miles. I'm actually feeling really good. 78? Make it about 78 miles. And then uh, going, running, walking, that type of thing. But by 78 miles, which is three marathons, everything's breaking down. Feeling things in my legs I never felt before. Like, is that right? Am I going to die? This type of thing. You start getting in your head. Because it's marathon training, but it's not uh, you just you have no idea what your body's going to do the first time you do it, and so it became a very mental battle. But by seventy-eight miles, by seventy miles, I was hurting. By seventy-eight miles, I was mentally done. I just said, "That's three marathons. I can finish here." And then, as many people do today, I can go out on social media and tell everybody I ran three marathons and get a bunch of likes. Like, that's great. My first time, <laughs> right? That's great. I'll, I'll get some praise. Yeah. 
I went back, popped the trunk to my car where I had a nice uh, air mattress because I was told you might have to sleep to finish the 24 hours. And so I kind of knew my race was done. And I went, popped the trunk. There was the air mattress, but there was also a note next to the air mattress and from my wife. And she said, we didn't sleep on you. You can't sleep on us. Oh. So oh. I turned back around. No, you didn't. And finished the race. Yeah. So it took 16 hours. Are you happy minutes. with that result or are you? Uh, I'm happy with yeah. it. It was the second fastest 100 mile time on the day. The problem is I finished in 16 hours and 45 minutes. The race director said, it's a 24 hour race. I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> My goal was 100 miles. That's amazing. Uh, and so that was the first time. So that was 2015. That was the first time I kind of felt a sense of accomplishment during all this. Like it was sort of in like, all uh, those years. Yeah, just, even all those other races. Yeah, just going through, like qualifying for the Boston Marathon was one thing, but yeah. running 100 miles, something, if I never do it again, which I don't have any plans to, <laughs> I can always have it's that memory. a good memory. bucket list. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And tell the grandkids, you know. Yeah, I feel like miles. I've accomplished it just knowing you. So, you know, I feel like that's good but enough it was, for uh, me. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was interesting. Um, and then uh, eventually, 2015, I still had to be sentenced for my crime. So at least I had this sort of outlet with the exercise, but I still had to be sentenced. And so the judge looked at my case. Sentencing was just me and my lawyer, the judge, the prosecutor. The judge said I helped build 20 of 80 cases. They'd actually prosecuted over 80 people um, in 2008, 2009, 2010. And so um, I helped build 20 of those 80 cases. And she said, because it's been six years, uh, just go on with your life. So I got what's called a time-served sentence. Did the FBI champion that? Yeah, yeah. No, they, they definitely were pushed you. for okay. it. Yeah. So they didn't just psychologically mess with you. No, they no. They actually they had my back at the yeah. end. Okay. Uh, they wrote a letter to the judge saying this is everything. What they do is write what's called a 5K letter. It's everything bad you've done and everything good you've done. And so uh, there was a lot of good in there for them. And the judge saw that. And really, it had been six years. So what's the point of going away at this point? I mean, yeah. most of my 30s were gone. And so I got a, a non-custodial sentence. So today... As I do speeches, I can't wear an orange jumpsuit and do the scared straight after school special. <laughs> but, uh, you know, convicted felon at the end of the day, obviously can't work in the old industry anymore. And every, what's weird, I don't think about it, but like every six months I get a letter from Chase or City saying that my personal checking account's closing. And I know it's something to do with this, but like, I'm not talking about a trading account, just like a personal hmm. stock checking account. And I think, well, what, what does this have to do? And uh, if I figured out, it's because I'm a, what's what called AMList. So I'm a potential money launderer at any bank in the world the rest uh, of my life. I, it's not even a complaint. It's just something I never considered back when I placed those trades, like these little things like that. Every decision. Every little decision. And still I'm sentenced, but it's not like my, um, start getting all these job offers because my sentence is behind me. I'm still a convicted felon. So I'm still banging my head against the wall. And then the summer of 2016, I got a call and it said 212-384-1000, which is the FBI. I thought, holy shit, what do these guys want now? Oh, I, what, I can't even trade anymore. And only if I wanted to, they asked me, would I come talk to the, the rookie FBI agents in New York about my case because they were working on some new cases. Uh, when the FBI approaches somebody they want to cooperate, they kind of have to be their psychologist, their psychiatrist. They can't just throw them against the wall and, and scare them. Like, you have to work with this person. It's going to be the worst day of their life. They have to understand these as young agents. You don't want to lose anybody. Yeah. Uh, two cooperators, unfortunately, committed suicide that were in my position because they just thought like their life was over. Oh my God. And at least I was able to say my career is over, but my life isn't over. Like I'll get through this. It took me several years to get there. I don't think I was ever suicidal, but I had some dark moments. And so I spoke to the agents and the FBI. I thought that was really compelling. And I should go out and uh, try to speak uh, to my old industry to share the story as a different way to train employees 
Uh, every year, they need to be trained in insider trading law or uh, compliance training. And so it's typically outside lawyers, often very dry legalese. And so I sent a cold email out to 300 general counsels. So the way I did that was I bought a list of uh, the, the biggest hedge funds for a couple of hundred dollars. I went on LinkedIn to find the general counsel's names at each of the 300 funds and then guessed either first thought last or first initial last is anybody that's done cold emailing. No, so half of them bounced back. Yeah, 300 emails went out. I got two replies saying this sounds interesting. And those were my first two speaking clients. Wow. How long did it take to ascertain those? So that was in September of 2016. By November, uh, both of those firms had me come speak to their analysts. And I said, can you tell three people, could you tell three, could you tell anybody in the industry that this is what I'm doing now, that it went well at your firms? And slowly, 2017, I built out the speaking business. So here I am at 40, going to have to start over. Yeah, let's talk about that if you don't mind. So I guess the 30s are, you know, they went by you. Yeah. So here you are 40 years old, having to reinvent yourself. And it's not just like the average person who's like, oh, hey, I want to make a career change and I got a clean slate. Let's go. Right. You're here you are. I don't have a clean slate, but let's right. go. Right. Yeah. There's a lot. Talk of, me through uh, that. Yeah. So that first cold email I sent out, you know, hi, I'm Tipper X. I'd like to come talk to your firm. That's a very awkward, uh, <laughs> it's a very awkward is that, email. Is that get. literally what you? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I made the headline sort of sexy Tipper X uh, speaking, whatever I said, just to get people to open it. I think I maybe had a 30% open rate, that first email, just a really odd, like, what is that's, somebody- That's a good open rate, just so you is know, it? Okay. Yeah, okay, that's, good, that's good. actually a very good yeah. open rate. So yeah. at least I had, a, I, had a, I had a headline where they opened it. But I think as people looked at this, they would think somebody in my position, what is Tom going to come say? Is it going to be a tutorial on like how to not get caught? Or is it going to be something that's educational? So I wasn't surprised to only get two responses to even have a conversation. But I had to sort of throw the, cast a wide net and see what came in and two responses. And so those are my first two speaking clients. They said it was really compelling. They got great feedback from their analysts. And I thought, well, maybe this is something I could do professionally. Sorry to interrupt, but, but had you ever done public speaking before? I had never done anything like this. Yeah, <laughs> okay. I was an introverted financial analyst uh, at home around me. As you know, I'm usually a pretty quiet person. I often joke with my wife, this is kind of weird. I'm a professional speaker because at home, I'm very quiet. The connections I made with people, I guess, as I started telling the story, people really connected with it. This idea of this incrementalism of poor decision making and how things can escalate and how they could self reflect and look at themselves. Not that the same thing would happen, hopefully, with anybody. Mm -hmm. Like today, if you get that call, you know what to do. But it's certain situations in everyone's career they could go there's over a lifetime of a career there's situations where you can go one direction or, or another based on making one poor decision mm -hmm. and so that's how i framed my discussion 2017 i emailed uh, a bunch of event planners and saying can i speak at your conference again for them it was a really awkward email to get got two responses spoke at those conferences it slowly through 2017 built it out where by the end of the year i had over 100 speaking engagements by you spoke over over 100, 100 paid speaking wow. engagements in 2017, and it just ramped up through the year by word of mouth. Bureaus won't work with me. Agencies won't because of the felony. I'm like, well, that's my whole story. Uh, You're kidding me. No. Wow. Yeah. The irony. So, yeah, yeah. I was kind of, I guess, starting over at 40. For my situation, as you said, having this baggage, there's not a whole lot of options. I mean, I kind of Google people that were caught up in this over the years. What are, what are people doing? And you can't really find anyone. And if they are doing something, it's nothing... It's hard to even how, find how people start over. And so I had to start my own company. The message people liked, it, uh, the way I, I, I constructed what happened and the takeaways for young people today. 
and really having those connections with people. And for me personally, reprioritizing at age 40, what was important to me was different than what was important at 25. At 25, it was career, money, be a famous hedge fund manager. At 40, it's relationships, it's close connections. It's, it's like a different list of like reprioritizing yeah. what I'm, what's important to me now at 40 than what was important at 25. Let, let's talk about some of those relationships. Is it obviously family and friends are marquee. Now from a business standpoint, what do those relationships mean to you? I owe a lot to the people that gave me the chance to come speak to their firms. People being so kind to give me the opportunity to do this because over the years I've seen people maybe in a similar situation as mine try to go out and speak about their crime and it often doesn't really land because the person doesn't seem that remorseful about it. Like I think the fact that I was able to go through kind of the seven stages of grief sort of thinking, okay, this happened. Over the years, I thought about, you know, why is that guy at the swimming pool, why is he still working and not me? But that gets me nowhere. He wasn't caught. I was. Being able to put this into context of like, this is one terrible chapter of my life, but it's not my entire life, which as I said, two people couldn't do that and they ended their life. Being saying, you know, this is, I was 29, 30. Now I'm 40. This is the second chapter. Being able to contextualize the bad parts of my life into being one chapter, but not the whole book. I didn't do that on day one. It took several years to get there. And really today, yeah, just having, uh, doing these presentations, getting emails from young people saying, I'll never forget, you know, what you talked about. Not that they would hopefully be in the same situation, but as you know, in anybody's career, you're going to be in a situation where you can go one way or another and you can justify, you can get the self-talk thinking this is okay. Have you had people reach out to you that either have done something similar and, hey, hey, what do I do? Do I report this or do I keep it quiet or, or mm. you know, have you had that situation? Have you also had people like, oh, here's what's happened to me. Is Have I crossed the line? Like what? Yeah. So what happens often after I talk, maybe the conference is, um, it's interesting. People come up and I'm kind of like the Catholic priest for confession. <laughs> people come up, not, not that they're confessing crimes, yeah. although some of the stuff I hear from people probably are crimes, <laughs> but uh, people will come up and share their own stories. Like, oh, Tom, I was doing much worse than that. But that was the nineties, you know, like, oh, oh yeah. <laughs> but you, it, it kind of, people let their guards down after I talk, they come up and, and talk to me about their situations or that type of thing where we have a nice conversation. Like they realize, I guess, how close in their careers some things could have swung in either direction. Yeah. And me sort of owning the story about what happened, but what I've learned from it and what they can do in their careers uh, to avoid the same similar fate. You know, people have really uh, appreciated that. And uh, just getting the emails sort of keeps me going. I mean, it is a business and I'm staying busy with it. But uh, if I don't have those connections with people and that follow up, I don't think it's going to last. So that's important. How do you stay in touch with these people? And, and these are the GC community, compliance? Uh, what are, GC who are the compliance, people? analysts, uh, conference attendees, some people at conferences that reach out on LinkedIn that really were moved by it. Mm -hmm. uh, when I'm in the city, you know, I'm in the city, let's get, get a coffee and catch up because I want to maintain those relationships. Mm -hmm. So most of my schedule is going into uh, New York City. I live in New Jersey and speaking to an investment firm there, or a bank. When I have the whole day open, I do try to get coffee with people or that type of thing to sort of keep keep that relationship and keep that networking, um, that face-to-face -face going rather than sort of connecting with somebody on LinkedIn and never talking to them again, which Agreed. Um, I try to connect with everybody after I meet them. But if you don't have that follow-up, it's a meaningless connection. How long Yeah. How long do you t does it typically take for you? Say you do meet someone or you come across someone that you're impressed with, how long until you follow up with them or respond back to a communication they might have had with you? Yeah. No, I, I try to respond within 24 hours. I get the emails and just sort of tag them like, to respond to them. Then I, I try to not go over 24 hours uh, in response. You know, now if somebody reaches out to me about speaking at their firm, I'll pull them up on LinkedIn and usually see, okay, we're LinkedIn, to, as we were talking about earlier, just to, to other people that have had me speak. And so 
use that person as a reference, that type of thing. Um, so I use LinkedIn a lot. And do you stay in touch with a lot of people from your past? Only a few. The people that like yourself that emailed me that day, this happened, I stay in touch with. So I guess the good part, one of the good parts about this is you kind of know who your real friends are and who aren't. Some people to this day still won't talk to me. And 10 years now, that's, that's their issue. It's not my issue anymore. At the time, it was my doing. But 10 years later, it's their their issue and so sorry to cut you off these people that you're referencing these people that like you thought were your friends or people that you think are just your actions impacted them at all some of the people that you have in mind i mean you know that day when my name came in i do remember anybody in the industry that knew anybody in these cases had to raise their hand so i know that that day for them was very stressful i'm sure saying they had to know me yeah but that's not that's knowing you is yeah whatever it's not they're not going to lose their job because of that yeah um but I'm just thankful the people that reached out and I, I knew I got about seven or eight emails that day, two emails from friends um, from college that I hadn't spoken to since college. And we're like, That's I great. just saw your name. This is news to me. I know it's not news to you, Tom, but if you need anything, let me know. And awesome. so and those are the people that I now try to see a lot because those are the people that reached out that at that point. And so going through this, one of the positive was it's kind of separated who were friends and who weren't. I'm very lucky that my wife stayed with me. Uh, it obviously wasn't easy. I read a stat that like 85% of marriages, if a spouse picks up a felony, it ends the marriage. I mean, understandably, wow. yeah, it's grounds for divorce. Yep. Um, but now that we've been through this, the marriage is stronger than ever. Uh, was it tough for her because she's in the industry also? Like, I, I can't even fathom that being. Yeah, it was because uh, she had to she, tell she her has boss. Your, she keeps your name. Yeah, right? that's yes. right. That's right. And so we had to think about how is she going to tell her boss and one of her coworkers, like several people had had saw my name but wouldn't say anything to us. And then so it's sort of like, well, do you know? And they'd be like, oh, you know, I saw something but didn't want to say anything because, you know, right. how do you bring it up? And so yeah. she had a coworker that I think was in that situation, read the article, didn't say anything. But her company uh, was pretty good about it. But, yeah, that was stressful for her because the same last name. Yeah. There was one New York Times uh, reporter when my name became public who we actually had a public family blog because we put pictures of our baby up for my parents in the South. And the New York Times reporter went on there and said, you know, Raj was arrested and Tom just had his first baby and named like my child and named my wife on this New York Times article because I wasn't responding to his emails for a comment. And so he put all my personal stuff in the New York Times right up of my case. That's horrible. And uh, he was actually, I think he was fired by the New York Times for plagiarism and <laughs> fired by the website Deal Breaker. So. You're kidding me. Is that just karma. like, that's just what happened? It just happened that's the kind of guy career, so that's karma. karma. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, yeah, it gets you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it gets you. Yeah. Oh my God. So so here you are. Your business is booming. You obviously do a great job. I mean, you're extremely articulate. People that do know you, like truly know you, they're got to be in your corner. I yeah, mean, absolutely. Yeah. Um, oh, it's a good business now. It's just about staying busy with it and really making sure I'm connecting. I often do, I always do an interview with whoever's bringing me into the company beforehand. And whereas a year ago, I would say yes to everything, just get me get me a paid speaking gig. Mm-hmm. Now, it doesn't happen often, but once or twice, I'll say, you know what, the way you're describing your firm, I don't think my presentation is going to land. And so I'll actually not take a speaking gig because I don't think it's going to land. And so I think it's more authentic that way rather than just trying to chase everything and make a bunch of money just trying to make sure every engagement is going to leave that impact because I want to leave a legacy with this. I don't want the legacy to be Tom made these four trades, the four tickers. <laughs> I want it to be, you know, at age 40, hopefully I have a long time to, to talk about this and ethics and compliance is only getting to be a bigger field. It's here. And I know if I had heard a story like this, when I got that call from this, this investor, maybe I would have thought about hey, I heard this guy's story because I didn't really have much training. And so I was able to sort of justify it and rationalize it. But I'd like to think the more people I can talk to, somebody in their career is going to be in a situation that might be similar. And if they say, you know, I heard this guy's story, 
uh, hang up the phone or, or whatever the situation is. Yeah, that's the idea. You're all over. You're international, correct? Yeah, I was in London, Hong Kong, wherever the. I usually get a couple of inquiries every week, um, and then uh, work out my calendar, and then it's a lot of travel with speaking. And then, how are you maintaining all of these relate the international relations? That's tougher to do. Yeah. Um, just follow up, and I'm in London uh, typically every quarter. I'll follow up with people where I spoke at the last my last trip and say, let's get a coffee, let's get lunch or something, and try to always keep a full calendar, not just let a day go by where I'm only speaking for an hour and haven't filled my day up. So I try to keep a, a robust calendar because you never know where the next engagement's going to come from. I could be having coffee with somebody that brought me in before and they could say, oh yeah, you know, I'm thinking about something where you might be a good speaker. And, and Who have you thing. found to be, have you found a certain type of, I don't know if it's a fund or, or industry is the right way to do it, or if it's a position that people seem to be better at networking and making introductions, whether it's someone sitting in the front office, whether it's someone in the back office, whether it's another vendor, whether it's it might make, does that question make sense to you? No, it does. Yeah. I think it's personality driven. I don't think yeah. there's one job title where this one sort of person with this title is better than the other. I think it's just personality driven where there's a few people that I've sort of latched onto that have opened a lot of doors for me that I continue to kind of meet with. So you kind of know yeah. who's helpful, who I've been helpful to, and, and the, to the extent I can be helpful. But what do you do to try to be helpful for other people? Some of the smaller firms that bring me in want to know the best practices of the big firms because there might just be a few employees and they don't have the resources of some of the big firms. And so as I do this work now and make these talks, um, I can share with some of the people who are in the compliance role. They just want to keep their employees safe. And they might be the COO or the CFO, but they're also the CCO. Mm -hmm. And then like, Tom, just give me like the three sort of takeaways about like how we just, how I keep on top of this. And so what are the big funds doing? And I'm able to distill that down for them. And, and how often are these people reaching out to you? Not just to have you speak, but are they, have you now become like this thought leader in this space that there, people- There's, are... uh, I guess, unofficially, uh, people reach out occasionally just on uh, situations at their firms, but I have to represent, you know, I'm not a securities lawyer. If you need any advice, don't talk to me. You don't want to tell people that you're using TipperX as your advisor. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's it's yeah. TipperX advisors, but it's really professional speaking only. Gotcha. But it's just helpful to have those discussions. Um, if I speak in front of a group of CCOs who are at smaller firms, hey, you know, I don't have the budget to bring you in, but can you just give me a few takeaways I can think about, that, that type of thing, just being helpful that way. Now, what about all these people that as a result of your actions, do you worry about them? Do you worry that they're going to show up at another point in your life? Does yeah. That, yeah. Now, I kind of felt like a lot of these people who I helped the FBI with ended up being approached either like I was or uh, one of the FBI's tactics was they'd, they'd follow somebody to their favorite coffee spot and know how they ordered coffee. So they'd stand behind the person, order the person's coffee the way they liked it and said they're coming with us. So they they approach people like this sort of a Keystone yeah. cop. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Most people I helped them with were actually just approached the same way I was and were given the opportunity to help them. So they became cooperators themselves. So I try to justify this. You know, how do I rationalize who I helped them with? And so I stayed away from... Uh, good friends, but I helped them out with people who I felt this was their business model. So, yeah, but I don't worry about retribution. I mean, it's, I think people deep down know they were going to get caught one way or another. So what do you think about the industry now? I mean, I have a personal stance that I think it's still just as rampant as ever. Do you feel that it's changed? It's not now we'll, you know, hold me, guess, hopefully with your insights, because not everybody can afford you. So there's right, still right. a lot of this still going on. Right. Uh, what are your sentiments? It might be rampantly going on, but not the way it was in terms of passing on information at these conferences. Today, you could see it with uh, high-frequency trading or other types of um, strategies that are out there that weren't as prevalent back 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. When I do talk to firms, 
who were focused on technology stocks or healthcare stocks where a lot of these cases were brought. I'll ask the young analysts, so what is it like at these conferences? Do you see people like this? Is there the, still the Intel guy and the Google guy? And each one of the analysts says, you know, there's at least one person in our sector at these conferences who always appears to have all the information. And I said, well, stay away from them. <laughs> That's, uh, yeah. It's not maybe as rampant as it was, but there's still always that one person that has all the information. And really, people can get in trouble. You don't have to be carrying cash through an airport. To, <laughs> that's a, it doesn't have to be that bad. One SEC defense lawyer. So what happens is the SEC people become defense lawyers after the, that job. And one SEC defense lawyer was telling me he has a client, 29-year-old hedge fund analyst, my age when this happened, who as they were building the biggest position in the portfolio of, of this individual's uh, recommendation, he inadvertently received some information. He wasn't looking for it and deleted it and said, this isn't part of my investment thesis. I didn't see it. And they continue to buy the stock and he has now hired this guy to defend them. So hmm. if you have possession of it, even if it's not part of your thesis, you still have to restrict the stock. So that's sort of the nuance today. Wait, wait, wait. Explain that to me one so, more time. So if you're going to buy a, a stock. Right. So they were buying a, so yeah. this analyst was pounding the table on his favorite idea. He had his uh, legitimate analysis. Yeah. They're buying it. Apparently he inadvertently received a piece of information, either email or so I don't know how it was. So he's precluded then? From... So once you're in possession of that, on the basis of this information means if you actually have possession of it, even if it's not part of your yeah, thesis, yeah. and this is your best idea, your moneymaker, once you have it, you actually have to restrict the stock until that piece of information comes out. Even if you're not actively trying to get a list of information that's or tough. that type of thing. And so that's where today I think that people can get jammed up. And this guy's apparently hired a lawyer. I mean, this is like a serious yeah. thing where he could be in my shoes. And this is a guy who probably didn't have the intent to do anything like like and I just did. think about how easy information is to get now with text messaging or, or what, yeah. what's, the, what's the one uh, where what's it can app, disappear? Uh, oh, it's snaps. Yeah. Uh, so the young analysts today, they're on four or five of these things before yeah, work. That's what I'm <laughs> saying. Yeah. And there's private Slack groups talking about stocks. Slack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the SEC has very strict guidelines on electronic communication or what can be used. And some CCOs walk around the firm and say, let me see your phone. <laughs> let me see. You're kidding and me. And they still get, their, not they're doing anything illicit, but you can't even be using that type of stuff to talk about work. Uh, you can't even text about, you know, had a bad day because of XYZ stock. You can't even put that on, on email or anything now. Anything. Yeah. And yeah. so. That protects them though, I guess. Yeah, that's, that's the idea. Um, they're more thoughtful about it. But this little situation where you can justify it is not part of your thesis. You know, that guy's jammed up and it's unfortunate because. Because that's a part of what you're doing. I mean, you need to scratch to get information. Yeah. So where's the line? Yeah. You know, and getting back to something that you talked about before about having to be you know, in this type of role to be successful, you need to have the, this quantitative skill set, i.e. The, the analysis and running the numbers and things of that nature. But you also have to have a qualitative skill set of building relationships to get certain information. And like you said, being able to tell their tells without it being crossing the line. Right, right. And that's yeah. legitimately how it's done. Yeah. I mean, um, my job, my first boss said my job was to help bring him information nobody else had. And I should figure out, worry about where the lines are sort of later. And that hopefully was a different time, but it's instances today where it could happen where somebody doesn't have the intent to do anything, something bad, but they slip into this idea of, oh, this isn't part of my thesis. And another thing to think about too is if you're up close to that line, but technically thinking that you're within the law, you could still be investigated. And the cost of an investigation is time, resources, money. Oh. And so you could talk to a lawyer and they could say, or right, do you want to be avoid being charged? Most, most of them can do, or, or do you want to avoid being investigated? That's a higher... Standard. You don't even want to go through the investigation because that's a hassle. That's something that could turn into charges. You don't know. And so being far away from that line, obviously. 
but it is judge-made law, so there's no statute for what is insider trading. It's prosecuted as securities fraud, but insider trading Ponzi schemes are all prosecuted the same, and the penalties, the criminal penalties are the same. If I, if you gave me $1.2 million and I lost it all or stole it from you, that's the same as me trading these four stocks because $1.2 million is 30 to 36 months in prison. I mean, we could argue me stealing your money is different than me buying stocks. Intellectually, maybe we could say that, but right now the way it is, it's, that's the way the sentencing guidelines are set up. So there's not some statute to say what is and what isn't illicit insider trading. It's judge-made law. So have any of these law firms tried to bring you on board? I've done some work with some of the lawyers. Uh, they often do the training on uh, hypothetical situations. Mm-hmm. So sometimes the analysts will have questions about what if they're in this situation, what's legal, what's illegal. I, I steer clear from those. So I've done some work where the lawyer will answer those questions. One bold bracket law firm, big law firm, had me come talk to their associates, thinking about young associates who work on these types of deals, the risks of going home and talking to a roommate about, oh, I'm working on this deal. Oh, what are you working on? The roommate going and trading it. Mm-hmm. So uh, one of the uh, big law, uh, 200-year-old firm, white shoe firm, brought me in to talk to the associates. And so- Smart on their behalf. Yeah. That's yeah. Just to think about these situations, um, to have a healthy paranoia, as I said, always just uh, to have that sort of sense of um, fiduciary responsibility, especially right. just for the young associates, young analysts. Yeah. So so what's your biggest challenge these days? Biggest challenge these days is really how to how to just sort of keep this business, thinking about it as a business, what's sort of the five and the five and 10 year plan. Mm-hmm. Right now, I'm typically booked on a two or three month window. So it's hard to say, am I going to have any engagements this fall or next year? What's that going to look like? keeping the material fresh because my case now is going to be 10 years old and there's always new cases coming in and new ways the law is interpreted. So telling my story, but also keeping it fresh, keeping it applicable today for analysts who are now more than 10 years you know, younger than me. Who are the types of people outside the general counsels and the compliance that you're talking to on a regular basis to stay abreast of, you know, I guess what's going on in the current laws. Is it, is it just general people in the industry or anyone outside of that? It's those individuals, white collar defense lawyers. Some of the people that prosecuted me are now white collar defense lawyers. So I'll run into them 10 years later. Hey, yeah, to see you again. <laughs> yeah. Speaking now, of the now, sirens in the back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, now I'm doing a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> Had that bad thing happen. Now it's, uh, Making, as I say, making uh, eliminated elements. I think that's the phrase. Yeah. yeah. I'm sitting here peppering you with questions. Anything that, any questions that you have for me? Question for you, Adam, actually. As I build out this business and think about, you know, it's all kind of referral relationships, that type of thing. I don't have a speaking agency or speaking bureau. Is there anything that you would recommend from your experience that I should think about in terms of uh, containing the momentum? Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you're doing a great job. We could always do better. How... Have you kept some kind of database or is there any kind of contact relationship a server or system that you use? Um, just Excel. Like you I do, really? That's it. in Excel and I have uh, dates on when we last emailed or spoke. And okay. then once 30 days goes by, I follow up. If it's a potential target client, that type of thing, I just follow up with the email. That's great. Is it strictly just a business relationship or any of these people, people that you've just genuinely liked and people that you'd like to get to know on another level? There's a few that I've, I've gotten to know better, had coffee with a few times, that type of thing. But most of these relationships would be just sort of reaching out, um, maybe exchanging some emails, but nothing face-to-face or that type of thing. Gotcha. Yeah. Are you familiar with the Parada, the Pareta principle? Is that 
So. Yeah, yeah, the eighty yeah, yeah, twenty. How would how would you make about yeah, that with this? It's funny. I think they've actually updated it to more like ninety ten. So okay. for, for yeah. those of you who aren't familiar with that, the product principle, I forgot some Italian guy with the last name Parada. <laughs> you know, he studied. Uh, he did all this analysis, and he realized that that essentially, and this rule applies to so many pieces of life. But for business purposes, eighty percent of your business is going to come from twenty percent of the people that you do business with. Right. So okay. I don't know if you've noticed enough of that yet within your, you know, again, I know the business is fairly new, less than two years, but I don't know if you're seeing any kind of trends with the people that fall in that 20% referring you 80% of the business. Has that happened yet? Are uh, you seeing that? I haven't tracked it close enough where I should probably think more about it, tracking that a little better. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that's something that it's just, okay. it's clear. I mean, in all the business that I've been in, it's, it's just, again, more to the 90-10, mm -hmm. but you'll see whether they're going to directly give you business or, or they're going to be the ones that refer you on. So in terms of uh, networking standpoint, strictly from the business perspective, those top percentile people are the ones that I would really focus my energy on and try to get to know them on a more of a personal basis, just because, I mean, number one, you're just a likable guy. <laughs> so I think anyone that you're going to look to get to know a little better is going to really enjoy, you know, having you be their friend, right. especially if they're already looking to help you also. Mm -hmm. And I, I would see what else you might be able to do. I know that you do it anyway, like you'd help, but mm -hmm. maybe take a little bit more of a proactive approach saying, reaching out and saying, hey, I really, I was reflecting and I, I was trying to think about the people that have really made an impact on my life and I'd like to make a little bit more of an impact on theirs. XYZ person, you're right. one of those. If you find the time, I'd love to, let me take you out to lunch or right. what, whatever right. that might be. Okay. And, and you're going to get to know these people. And what's also going to happen is true friends getting to know each other yeah. are going to want to see people help it's you know the right. theory of reciprocity one of the right. you know the six laws like things like that right yeah i mean that would be otherwise your business is great as it is and you and i have stayed in touch all these years and it's even you know something as simple as just a funny text yeah you know i love right, right. you know there because time is uh you know that's the major commodity these yeah, days that's right i know if i just get a random text yeah you know, it's just not, hey, I was on your mind. Right. Could have been in the middle of a subway or on the bus somewhere, but you took a minute just to think about me. It's nice just right. to see your name pop up. And yeah. hey, if I've got a minute right now, then let me respond back. Or even just to keep the lines of communication open. It's almost like out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, that's a great point. Because um, I don't want to be, I don't want a year to go by and just sort of fall off face, you know, sort of be forgotten about. Like, oh yeah, yeah. that guy, Tom, he's been doing that. What is he doing now? Oh, he's still doing it, but nobody knows about it. You know, that's... Yeah. Yeah, correct. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, that's it. I mean, you've, like I said, you've got this great business, great guy, little things like that, I think would go, go very far. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Yeah. So I appreciate you coming back today, which is great. Just for those who uh, don't know, Tom is a sport amongst sports. He was here. We did this before. Unfortunately, <laughs> we had a little bit of a technical uh, difficulty, so he's back again. So I really, uh, you talk about being a friend and the type of guy that you are. I commend you for that. Thank you. If anyone wants to book you or get in touch with you, do you mind sharing that information? Sure. My website, www.tipperx.com. The FBI, that's the name they gave me, TipperX. So that's the business now. Or uh, Tom at TipperX, T-I-P-P-E-R-X.com. And what types of people typically, I mean, do you, do you field any kinds of calls if people just have any kind of questions in general? Oh, absolutely. I mean, usually it pertains to uh, potential speaking engagement. Mm -hmm. They want to talk about the audience. If I can customize it, whether it applies or not, typically I customize some of it based on the audience. If it's people that might be in operations and risk who oversee employees and want to think about these issues, what people they oversee, or if it's the people actually making the decisions, whether it be 
investment analysts. And I've also done some talks regarding conduct risk. One Hmm. investment bank had me in to speak to all their young employees in New York, London, and Hong Kong, just about conduct risk and the slippery slope. And then one of the um, most well-respected law firms in the world had me come talk to their associates. So it kind of has multiple avenues. Um, I field questions and calls all the time about uh, how I might be able to customize it for that crowd, and I'm happy to. So, all right. So that's a big takeaway for me, at least. So anyone who's listening, this just does not apply to Wall Street. Right. I mean, this right. is any reg- highly regulated industry. That's We're right. talking just ethics. Yeah, that's right. Ethics and conduct risk. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's good. So anyone who's listening that either is in, who has friends that are influencers in this space, or that hire people like Tom, you know, please reach out. You know, he's amazing. I so Tom, it. yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Adam. Make it a great day. I'm really glad you made it through the whole show. It tells me that you found it entertaining and enjoyed the content. In the spirit of helping us continue to provide such great content and amazing guests, we appreciate your participation through Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash networkwise. Your support really helps. Also, if you or someone you know is looking for a career change, is building a business, seeking to expand sales, or is just generally interested in improving your overall health and happiness, then head on over to networkwise.com. Not only does this platform offer you a plethora of resources, but will walk you through how to expedite the outcomes and the aforementioned goals that you seek. Thanks again for listening. Make it a great day. And remember to always networkwise. Wow.